baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. I think we ought to let 16 and 17-year-olds vote in certain elections. I wonder what you think about that. 651-461-9226. It's Jason. Welcome to Drive Time. It is a Friday here in the Metro. Snow, no. No, not much yet. We'll be watching that all afternoon. Uh, Certainly in parts of southern Minnesota, you're getting it. Uh, But, you know, the first snow disappointment of the season. So let's talk about elections. Let's talk about the future. Let's talk about voting. For sure, our electoral uh, process is dominated by people uh, my age and older. We vote. We care about our communities. We have been taught that voting is not just a right, it's a responsibility. There are people in their 20s who seem to vote based on, you know, if they're excited about the candidates or excited about the issues. But there's a subset of young voters who are not allowed to vote by law. They're 16 and 17. And yet the election that people my age are voting in really affects those young people directly. And that's school board elections. This came to mind for me reading this New York Times article today about what they're doing in Newark, New Jersey. Newark is New Jersey's largest city. And the city council in Newark unanimously approved an ordinance that would lower the voting age. Newark is the biggest city in the United States to expand voting rights to younger residents since 1971. And that was the 26th Amendment that lowered the voting age to 18. I think it's a no-brainer that 16- and 17-year-olds should be allowed to vote in school board elections. I think it's the ultimate in arrogance to think that because you're an adult or you're older, that you're somehow more educated on school board issues than potentially a 16 or 17-year-old given the opportunity to vote. I think they should be allowed to vote in those elections. And in fact, I'd love to know what you think as far as whether we should have 16 and 17-year-olds voting even in a presidential election or a mayoral election. 651-461-9226. There are some smaller communities that have allowed this to happen. Maryland, Vermont. Uh, There's a a suburb of Washington, D.C., Tacoma Park, Maryland. They've had 16-year-olds voting in local elections for a decade. In Berkeley, California, and Oakland, California, they approve referendums, giving 16-year-olds the right to vote in school board elections, but it's never happened. It's never been implemented. Now, if you look at school board elections, let's for a second be honest with ourselves and be realistic that most adults are not even voting. 
In Newark, for example, they found that only 3.1% of the registered voters cast ballots last year for the school board election. Each of the winners won with fewer than 3,500 votes. 3,500 votes. So, so why not? Why not let those 16- and 17-year-olds vote? I don't see an issue. I don't see a problem. I think having young people involved in an initial area, an initial election, would get them excited, would teach them how to get educated uh, to vote. It would provide schools an opportunity in a civics class to discuss how you vet a candidate, what you look for, skills that I think a lot of adults could use. The text line says, I'm out of my mind. I'm sure all of you old people are worried about the young people canceling out your vote. But school, uh, to me, the school board election is a perfect laboratory for this idea. Do it in a school board first. See how it goes. But do you really think that a 48-year-old or a 62-year-old is more equipped to cast a ballot than a 16 or a 17-year-old? I I don't see a lot of evidence that the older crowd is better. Let's get some calls because you guys are all telling me I'm wrong. I want to know why. 651-461-9226. Dan, I think it's easy to say, like, well, you know, look, most of us know 16- and 17-year-olds who are lunkheads. And most of us were lunkheads when we were 16 and 17. And there are many 16 and 17-year-olds that are very smart, very astute people. Uh, that's... I would think it's the same percentage of adults. There are a lot of dingbacks, dingbat adults yeah, who are... are out there voting that I think, like, you know, if we're going to start doing intelligence tests for yeah. voters. I think – so here's, here's where I would have an issue with it. I do think there is a point at which, as you get younger and younger and younger in terms of voting age – that you cross a threshold where a person just simply hasn't had enough life experience to be able to speak uh, credibly to certain issues that are going to be involved in any political race, school board or otherwise. Hmm. And so we do have to draw a line somewhere. Now, you could argue yeah, that's like going to be I, arbitrary, yes. right? Right. No, I, I agree with that. I don't know. To me, 16 and 17 is stretching it. I, I understand the value of the educational opportunity that it presents. But I think that's as equivalently matched by student council races and stuff that, you know, uh, kids participate in already. Um, I, I don't I don't know that this is that would be such a great idea. I think I, I do worry that at some point there's not enough lived experience there to be able to to speak credibly towards the issues that have, you know are hugely effective to communities that are dealing with school board situations. One texter says, they don't pay taxes. Give me a break. I never thought you were so out of touch with reality. Yeah, I know. Paying taxes isn't a requisite to vote. 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 21-year-olds, 25-year-olds who live with their parents and don't pay property taxes or school taxes all vote. Yeah. So I understand that sentiment, but paying property taxes is not. No. As part of a, again, lived experience thing maybe you could cite that as is one of 18 or 19 that different well I, but again you have to draw a line you would have to draw a line somewhere and that's and that's the point you know has a 26 year old lived more you know significantly more life 
in terms of you know uh, living as an as an adult as an individual than an eighteen year old of course they have right but is a sixteen year old student in the school system more equipped to vote on school board than a fifty five year old single woman who never has had a kid in the school I don't think so I really don't yeah I don't I don't think it's a slam dunk. I don't think it's a slam dunk. I think it is possible. Well, first of all, this idea that we're deciding, like, who's equipped or who isn't equipped, is that what voting is really about? There are lots of idiots who are voting. Lots of idiots. There are people who vote randomly. There are people who vote based on the last name of the candidate, who vote on the gender, who vote... I, I growing up in suburban Chicago, we would always vote for the Irish last names for the judges because you're like, I don't know who all these judges are. Then as I got older, I would vote, if I ever saw a woman up for a judge case, I'd always vote for the woman. You're like, probably too many guys on the bench. Is that a stupid way to vote? Unequivocally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. So this idea that like we're oh, once you're 22, you're geniuses when it comes to voting. I don't know. I just think I don't disagree with that. I think so few people are voting in these school board races. Maybe we need uh, to let the 16 and 17 year olds have a voice on school board and see, see if the voting is good. See if they participate, see if they're excited about it. See if it is a learning opportunity Uh, here in Minnesota, we have very good voter participation, but that's not the case everywhere. And it's not necessarily a guarantee that it's always the case. I understand the concern, the idea, and your point is right. Like, do I want a 14-year-old to vote? Not really. Well, why? Well, I don't know. Well, see, that's, you got to draw that's, a line somewhere. And, 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 that's, that's, and that's my point. You know, you say, you know, do we, you don't, you're reflexively saying, well, no, a 14-year-old, that's too young. But what's functionally the difference between a 14 and a 16? We allow 16-year-olds to drive. You're allowed to get a license to drive. You're not allowed to drink. You're not allowed to smoke. You're not allowed to do a whole bunch of different things. You're not allowed to do that at 18 either. Well, no, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's we draw these lines all the time, and do they really make sense? Not really. No, they're fairly arbitrary. Is it harder to administer a plan to allow a a 16- and 17-year-old to only vote in a school board race? Maybe. I don't know. Probably. Uh, You'd have to have a separate ballot. Yeah, I think different states do it in different ways. Yeah. Lots of texts coming in. Love to have your calls. 651-461-9226. What do you think? 16, 17-year-olds starting to see uh, some cities move to allow them to vote in school board races. I think it's a good idea. What do you think? Weigh in on the CCO Talk and Text Line next on this Friday Drive Time with DeRussia. Newark, New Jersey is experimenting with 16 and 17 year olds voting in school board races. I think it's a good idea. Most of you don't. Bruce is in a car on the CCO Talk and Text Line 651-461-9226. Hey, Bruce, happy Friday. What do you think about this? Well, Jason, you know, there are parts of this country where you kept, you have to be 18 to get a driver's license. Should we do that? And there are also parts... They're, they're all, yeah, I think it's Pennsylvania. There's, yeah. uh, you have to be 18 to get a driver's license. There are also areas of this country where you can be 14 and get a driver's license. <laughs> yeah. So true, true. in the rural areas, my point, though, is more to the fact if you're a youth and you're under the age of 18, no, you shouldn't have the vote. But you can go to the local candidates' headquarters and volunteer, do the phone banks, 
be part, become part of a lobby group at, uh, at, under that age. Uh, but other than that, no, you really shouldn't because it, it's just you don't have you don't have enough life experience, like you stated. Yeah, yeah, that was Dan. That was Dan who thinks they don't have enough life experience. No, I, <laughs> I, I get the idea that you don't have a uh, that you don't have that much life experience. But I do think a 16 or a 17 year old might have more relevant life experience when it comes to school board issues than a lot of adults, especially when you look at some of the issues that that have been taking over school board races, which have little to do with what's going on in school. I'm a former teacher. I would not want any of my former students to be voting on what happens in the schools that controls controls how I run my classroom. Yeah. Yeah, well, I bet there are a lot of adults that you wouldn't want voting on that either, though. Oh, yeah. Right? So how do we, I mean, look, like, if in my dream world, I would only want people who agree with me to be allowed to vote. But, like, that's not how it works either. I, I, I get no. no, I get it. I appreciate the call. Thank you. It is 651-461-9226. Only liberals want the voting age lowered. Now, this, I think, is the issue. This is one of our texters. Most every kid in high school is liberal. No rules, no consequence. After you work a while, you see how much your government takes out of your check and how little you get for it. It changes you. So, first of all, it depends where in the country you are. Like, it's preposterous to think that every 16 and 17-year-old is liberal. On top of it, turnout, like which 16 and 17-year-olds are going to be motivated to vote. Now, I do think it's fair... The, the, my one hesitation about 16 and 17-year-olds voting is whether they – how much they're influenced by what their parents say or think. So is a 16 or 17-year-old essentially just going to parrot whatever their parents think? That said, I bet, like, if you're only allowed to vote for school board, you may know more than your parents know about the issues that face the school board. You may you may know more. I don't want to say this. I I think this perspective that you're coming from maybe it's it's more. Um, it's more, I'm I'm trying to think of how to, how I want to say it. it. It's you're closer to the issue than maybe your parents are. You are. But do you have do you have a broad enough context to approach that issue in a in a wise and yeah. meaningful way. I mean, do, do most people? Most people over the age of 18 have at least had the opportunity to live life in such a way that they would have that. That doesn't guarantee anything. But after a certain point, again, as we're going backwards towards the younger folks, you hit a point where there just isn't the opportunity to even do it. I, that doesn't mean kids are yeah. stupid. It means kids are myopic because they have this I don't know. small when I, when I think back to like the kids that I was working with when I was coaching high school debate. Those kids looked at issues from both perspectives with much more skill than almost any adult that I know. Now, is that every 16 or 17-year-old? No. But there are lots of uh, – I, I think a lot of the 16 and 17-year-olds maybe wouldn't even vote just because they're given the chance. But uh, it doesn't scare me the way it is scaring a lot of our texters. On X, I'm getting more openness to it. Jeremy saying we should allow youth suffrage.
to many Minnesotans. I've experienced 14 to 18-year-olds that debate issues better than our adult legislators. Mark Westfall, who's a teacher, uh, says local elections are incredibly important. We need to embed civic understanding into our courses unless it's a presidential year. Many school board races get between 8 and 10 percent of the electorate voting. Now, certainly I think people are concerned that if you allow, you know, 16 and 17 year olds to vote and you have that civic education as part of the classroom experience, that then teachers are going to end up lobbying for school board members they want. That's a valid concern. Sure. That's a valid concern. Sure. You also can build safeguards to make sure that doesn't happen. I think this idea that every civics teacher is out there trying to indoctrinate your children oh, that's is silly. ridiculous. Yeah, that's silly. Uh, we'll see how it goes with Newark. Um, because, I mean, they'll get to test it out and we'll see how yep. it works, right? Yep. Many high schoolers are 18 and can vote, says one texter. Another says if they can run active shooter drills, I say they should be able to have a say in what happens to them. No directly. idea what one of those things has to do with the other, but OK. Uh, what about voting on bonds to build a new building that will raise taxes? Young people know nothing about that. Every town will get a new school if it were up to the students who don't have to pay for it. That'd be horrible, right? I just think that'd be that... terrible to actually have better and more educational opportunities. What a horrible idea. I think it's interesting that a lot of our texters seem to think that if you pay property taxes, you are somehow more knowledgeable or taking – if you pay property taxes, you are aware of how governmental decisions affect your pocketbook. But that is one consideration in many. The ability to weigh, all right, like this is going to cost me money, but I think it might be better – for our neighbors, our kids, uh, I, I think I think that's a different skill set. I hear what you're saying. I would also, I guess, the, where I will defend the textures that are worried about taxes and say this way: our our system of government came about as a result of saying, "Hey, if you're going to tax me, I should have a say in how that money is going to get used, or I should have the ability to elect somebody sure. who can speak for me in that regard." And so, if you're not paying property tax, if you're not paying that kind of thing. Uh, do you, should you have the same representation? I mean, I think there's a fair discussion to be had there. I mean, then you're saying like, if you're a renter, you're out. If you're oh, living in somebody, pro- property tax. If you're living in somebody else's house, I mean, sixteen-year-olds are paying. You know, if you're living with your parents at twenty, you're not paying any property tax. So, I, I just think this idea is a little goofy. Uh, good conversation. I appreciate everybody who texted in. Three thirty-one. We're going to take a break. The Chief Justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court. Brand new Chief Justice. She will join us, Natalie Hudson, in just a minute here on CCL. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. I'm sorry, that sound uh, is what played before we go to the Chief Justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court? That's the 
Chief Justice Natalie Hudson, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is how we this is how we bring you onto the show. It's ridiculous. It's memorable. I will remember this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so good to have you on uh, the John Schuster Coldwell Banker Hotline here on WCCO Radio. Natalie uh, Hudson, the new Chief Justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court. I don't know. Are you still new? It's it's been a couple months now. It, it's been three months. I, I, I feel uh, still fairly new. But, yes, I was uh, officially sworn in on October 2nd. So, yeah, so it's been three months. and uh, But it's been a, a very good uh, three months, a full three months. That's for, sh- for certain. It has been eventful. And we had this uh, interview set up a couple of weeks ago. We did not know that news would break that fellow uh, Minnesota Supreme Court Justice G. Barry Anderson was going to announce that he was retiring in May. We knew he was retiring because the mandatory retirement age of 70 was was, uh, near. Uh, But I just uh, wondered your thoughts on, uh, you know, you've served with uh, Justice Anderson for a while. Yes, I have. I actually served with Justice Anderson in two capacities. We've served uh, for the last uh, eight and a half, almost nine years that I've been on the Supreme Court, so I've served with him here. And But Justice Anderson were also colleagues, and uh, he was on the, the Court of Appeals, where I also served for, for many years. But, um, but yes, Justice Anderson um, will be retiring in May, and he has served the Supreme Court uh, ably, uh, more than ably, for the last 20 years. Um, and he has just been a, an outstanding jurist, uh, just a gifted jurist. And he, we will certainly miss his wisdom and his wit. Um, and he, he's a carrier of much knowledge, having been on the, the court, yeah. institutional knowledge, having been on the court for 20 years. So he will be missed. But um, we, we really thank him for his tremendous service to the judicial branch. Chief Justice Natalie Hudson for the Minnesota Supreme Court with us. Do do you, you know, the media and the reporting of this has made much of the fact that uh, Justice Anderson was the last Republican appointee to the Minnesota Supreme Court. So his replacement will be appointed by uh, Governor Walls, and it will be all justices appointed by DFL governors in this state. Does that concern you that all of you are appointed by, uh, you know, governors of the same party? It, it doesn't, uh, Jason, for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I, I think it, it assumes and misapprehends, if you will, how we actually do our work as justices. We are not uh, Democratic justices. We're not Republican justices. Um, we, we take a constitutional oath to uphold the rule of law, and we strive our very, very best to do that in a nonpartisan fashion so that, you know, we're, we are applying the law to the facts as best we understand it. Um, we also have an abiding uh, belief in the precedent of, of our, uh, our court. And so we respect the court as, an, as a nonpartisan institution. And I know I speak for all of my colleagues when I say that. And the other thing I would point to, that we have historically done so, uh, regardless of the composition of the court, is reflected in, in our unanimity rate, what we call our unanimity rate. If you look back at the history of the court, you will see that we are unanimous almost 70% of the time, regardless of party affili- affiliation or who appointed us, what governor appointed us. 
And what I think that says to people or should say to people and give people confidence in is the fact that this is a court that has a long history of debating in conference in good faith as justices and not as justices of a particular uh, a governor. And, and so we work very hard to try to come together uh, when we are deciding cases. Well, and your, your, your court here in Minnesota has been very successful at that. I think if you ask most Minnesotans Absolutely. what they think about the Supreme Court, They don't think of it as a partisan court. That is very different from how people feel about the United States Supreme Court. And certainly when you look at what's been going on in our our neighbor to the east, and a lot of our listeners are from Wisconsin, their elections certainly for their state Supreme Court are unbelievably partisan. And, and and we recognize that, Jason, and that is uh, by design, if you will. We work hard at that. We we value the nonpartisan um, uh, relationships we have amongst each other, and we value court as a nonpartisan institution, and we work hard at that. And yeah. a, a piece of that is— How do you keep um, it? How do you keep it best- that way? So so we, well, so we you don't have some of the same issues. You know, I—, I I am saddened by the fact that that so many Americans have such a poor opinion of the United States Supreme Court because of the partisan nature of the divide in in most of the decisions, it seems. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I think that that holds true for many people. But we, we do that in a number of ways. One is just a commitment to collegiality here on the court and to being willing to listen to the other person's position and to hear people out and being willing to change mind if you've heard something that that is persuasive. But on the other other the other piece of that is we've worked hard here in more in Minnesota to keep sort of the big big money out of our judicial races. And so um, my colleagues and I, um, I don't know of a colleague on my court or in historically that has accepted, for instance, money from a particular uh, political party for our campaigns. And that's done by, you know, that's done intentionally because once you accept that kind of money, um, you become beholden, if you will, or at least there's the appearance that you are. And so we, we, we strive to put those kinds of things in place. And we rely actually on programs like you're doing here just now, but also other members of the, the media and the public and lawyers to also be champions of um, a nonpartisan uh, judicial uh, branch. We need help in, in getting that message out that, that you don't want someone on the bench who's already predecided how they're going to rule on a particular matter. Um, and so that message has to, to come from a, a number of groups, and I think we've been very successful or relatively successful in doing that here in Minnesota. But it's, it's a constant uh, – we have to stay at it. We, yeah, we, we yeah. cannot uh, important, you know, I think. become lax. Right. It is. It's, it's critical. Yeah. Justice uh, Natalie Hudson – with us, Chief Justice, the Minnesota Supreme Court. Do you think, uh, you know, you are, what, four years away from the mandatory retirement age? Does it? Correct, correct. Does it, less than that, sh- yeah. Should, should we still have a mandatory retirement age of 70 for Minnesota Supreme Court justices? 
Wow. Well, you know, that's a legislative determination, and I think that's a discussion that is worth having. Um, and, um, you know, certainly I think uh, people are living longer now and living very vital lives, and, and 70 to some extent is an arbitrary number. Um, but uh, but that's a legislative decision to be made, and I think, um, you know, all the various interest groups should come together and have that discussion about whether that, that is the, the proper age. And so I'll leave that to others, but I think it's certainly a discussion worth having. It's, it's I think we kind of hear how, we, we kind of hear how you feel about it, uh, Chief Justice. Like, I do think <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of debate about the presidential candidates and their ages, and you're looking at President Correct. Biden. Uh, turning, Correct. you know, he's 81 and uh, pre- uh, former President Donald Trump will be 78. And, you know, uh, to me, that's to be the president that feels a little old. But when you look at the demand of being a chief justice, I think I, I don't know. I'm just or, or, or uh, a regular justice. I'm not sure 70 makes sense. You're not flying an airplane. You're not, you know what I mean? It's like it's <laughs> that's true. When you think that's of another true. profession with a mandatory retirement age. Correct. Correct. You know, there, there, there are things to be said on both sides of that. Right. Jason, for sure. Uh, Chief Justice Natalie Hudson with us. I find your history uh, interesting and your family history uh, because you, you know, you started as, uh, you know, an attorney helping out poor people with housing issues and worked at uh, Hamlin University, and you've done, uh, you know, the office of the attorney general. You've done all these different things. And then uh, your husband was a, a former police officer, right? That's correct. He uh, was a patrol officer for the city of St. Paul for almost 15 years. Does that life correct. experience that you bring around law enforcement, around justice, around people, uh, who maybe are are the people who need uh, the help of the law and of of the community. I mean, does that shape what you do and the questions you ask on the bench? Oh, I think it absolutely does. I, I think, and that's true for I think all justices. Um, we are all a, a product of um, our upbringing and our life experiences. Uh, we bring that to the the bench as we consider the the very difficult issues that that come before us. And I think that's part of the reason why you want a diverse bench, particularly on an an appellate court of last resort, which is what our court is. You want those different uh, life experiences and work experiences to come to bear because it will uh, color in some ways the questions that you ask because you have different life experiences. And so I think that is vital and critical to an appellate court so that all of those um, experiences and, and, and lived experiences can come to bear um, as the court deliberates um, the issues that come before it. And so that's why diversity is so important on a court. Yeah, it's not. I mean, obviously, your uh, racial diversity as the first uh, woman of color, first person of color as chief justice on the Supreme Court has been a story. But you bring up all the different sorts of diversity that make a difference on the court. Absolutely. I think there's all kinds of diversity. Uh, race is certainly one, but gender, um, uh, you know, ab- ab- you know, ableism or able being able bodied or not. 
um, practice diversity. Um, I think one of the greatest contributions that Thurgood Marshall made actually to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, beyond uh, his race was the fact that he was the only justice uh, that had a background in poverty law. Mm, Um, And he brought that to the court. And so practice diversity is important. Um, It's important that you have geographical uh, diversity. Uh, One of the justices on our court um, uh, comes from outstate Minnesota, and I think that is so important, again, to to the work that comes before the court. So we have that, that perspective as well. Um, you just need to see the court being reflective of the of the people that it serves. What's and, been and what's that's important? What's been your favorite moment before we let you go, Chief Justice Natalie Hudson? What's been the best part, your favorite moment so far of being the Chief Justice? Working with just such incredibly talented people. One of you know, as an associate justice, you don't always get to see and work with as um, many people within the branch as you do as Chief Justice. And um, you, so you don't really have the same appreciation that I've uh, uh, come to have in these last three months for just the incredible talent within the branch. Um, our state court administrator and, the, and all of the people within his office, um, all of the folks within our finance uh, division, and you, I could go on and on. Um, And so that has been um, uh, an interesting part of the job and one that has made uh, made it an enjoyable part of the job. And and I guess, you know, the opportunity again to to uh, and also, I should say, to work with my colleagues who who I so respect, um, who have supported me the last three months and everything that I've done. And even though we we have a new relationship with one another. Um, but that's been enjoyable as well. So, uh, but it's just seeing the talent across the state, and and obviously the talent with it, with our within our the judicial branch as a whole, with our district court judges, who are really the the heart and soul in many ways of yeah. our judicial branch. So, for sure. for being sure. able to watch that work and, and work with those individuals has been has been fantastic. Natalie Hudson, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, we appreciate the time. We hope uh, we can visit again, talk about other issues. I hope the court. so too. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you, and you take care. Thanks, Natalie. Three fifty one, CCO continues next. And a winter weather advisory brought to you by Newgate School. Overnight, light snow in the metro. Tomorrow, one to three inches of snow, mostly to the south and the east. High of 11. Sunday, you wake up, it'll be five below. The wind will make it feel like 25 below. Right now in Minneapolis, it's 13 and maybe light snow, depending on where you are. We are going to play Card D Sharks as soon as Mark Fry updates us on the news. So I need two contestants willing to play. Uh, for valuable prizes that are unknown. 651-461-9226. Two contestants, let's play a game. Have fun on this Friday. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 